Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got a great friend of Grow CFO with me, Patrick Dunn. Good afternoon, Patrick. Hi there, and good to be with you. It is. Patrick, you know, you've done some great things for us on the inside of Grow CFO, but I don't think I've ever had a chat with you about you yourself. So and tell me a little bit about Patrick Dunn. What, where does he hail from? How did he get to where he is now? Yeah, well, so I was, um, I hail from that well-known place for directors, Toxness in Liverpool. Um, I uh, was one of six kids, uh, classic Irish immigrant family in Liverpool. Um, and I managed somehow to get myself to university uh, and do maths and then spent a spell in the chemicals industry went to business school, got an MBA, then spent uh, the bulk of my executive career with 3i, ending up on the operating committee. And during my time at 3i, doing a ton of stuff around boards, being on boards um, in uh, all sorts of things. Uh, and uh, in my spare time, building some social enterprises. So when I retired in, um, in 2012, I, was, uh, I had many things I wanted to do. Um, and uh, I've spend probably a week a month in Africa normally. This is not normal time, but uh, uh, with the two charities I founded, one called Work in Africa, one called ESSA, both focused on uh, ed education. Um, and uh, today I also, I have a business called Bordelta, which does work with boards, uh, both on the advisory side uh, and also quite a lot of training. Uh, so I have a partnership with the FT, for example, and, um, help out a lot with the FT board director programs, including the uh, diploma. I'm uh, a visiting professor at Cranfield. Um, I uh, am on the board of the Chartered Management Institute and chair the oversight board for the Chartered Management Consultants Award, which is a joint venture between the Chartered Management Institute and the Management Consultants Association. And um, I uh, chair the EY Foundation for for EY. Uh, apart from that, I've got three grown-up boys who um, bring huge amounts of joy um, and live in live in southwest London. So the lad from Toxteth certainly managed to lose that Scouse accent. Yeah, well, if you're an Irish family um, and um, uh, you, you don't it's, you don't always have that Scouse, Scouse accent, it's sort of uh, one of the, one of those things. But um, uh, yeah, and I moved away, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, sort of early but um uh i've uh, you know the, the vast bulk of my life has been out, outside of liverpool although i spend a huge amount of time sort of i go back to liverpool a lot to see my my mum who's still alive so uh, yeah. an amazing city indeed indeed it's a city i haven't spent a great deal of time in i've visited once or twice for client things but yeah it's uh, i think of liverpool and my home city of newcastle as having very similar Cultures and very similar reasons for being there through industry and so on. Yeah, our football teams are as good as yours. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say there's a sort of big difference there, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Patrick, <clears throat> you've written a, a book that I keep hearing a lot about, which, not remarkably, given the the, the history of your your career, is called Boards. Uh, tell me how that came about. 
Well, it's the it's the fourth book I've written actually, but I had a very long break. So um, the the other thing I didn't mention is that I'm mildly dyslexic, so writing doesn't naturally come to uh, to me. I'm sort of more mathematically inclined. Mm. But um, uh, in 1997, I published my first book, which was about running board meetings because I've been to some really bad board meetings, and I thought I came out of one of them and wanted to give this guy who was the chair a book, so it would save me a lot of time. Uh, and I couldn't find one, so I sort of I wrote a pamphlet, six-page sort of pamphlet about running board meetings, and that did uh, that. We just used that at Three I, and it, yeah. I think there were thirteen and a half thousand of them went from our receptions. Um, and a publisher approached me and said, "You know, can you can you turn this into a book? It's it's sort of useful stuff, really." And I did. And then I wrote another one about directors' dilemmas, a series of difficult choices board directors have to take, and then an exact handbook and then I got rather sort of um, fed up with having to do new editions and all the rest of it and 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 I had a break from you know 2003 until last year on the on the writing books thing but um, because the other books had done quite well and a number of people had asked me to update them and the FT had, had uh, wanted a course book for their board director programs um, and and I actually felt the the urge again to uh, to write and I was traveling a lot. Traveling is great for writing. Oh yeah, um, you're, you're stuck and, in that um, airport or whatever, just with your laptop. You yeah, so it. I was thinking about the topic boards and I thought, you know, I wonder if anyone's got the title boards uh, and no one had, which was remarkable. So I uh, got the title and I set about trying to produce something that I thought would be useful to people. So a practical guide rather than than an academic piece of work. But I wanted also to put some ideas into the book, things which I felt were important, interesting uh, and useful. Uh, but as ever, I also wanted to put a series of real life situations in to, to give, give ideas, uh, ideas life. And I, in terms of structuring the book, I, I love triangles and ages ago I'd, I came up with this triangle of purpose, people and process when thinking about a board and its effectiveness. And I thought that would make a good structure for the book. So there's a chunk of stuff around, you know, purpose of the board, purpose of different roles, uh, in, interaction with the management team and the board, all that kind of stuff. Ton of stuff around people because that actually, you know, in terms of making a board effective, the quality of the people and the quality of the relationship they have with each other and with the management and stakeholders and so on is really critical and then you know good plumbing really helps the board do better so I thought that you know decent section on that so half the book is purpose people process and half is kind of series of dilemmas that you would face as a board member in public private public sector charity a whole mix of different types of boards and we sort of navigate our way through these these situations right. and right. Um, yeah so it's straightforward so, so you're saying it's it's practical rather than academic that's great i like that sort of book it, um, it is but, but it but it also where i have an idea what i've tried to do is find evidence or research which supports that idea as well yeah and it yeah. that way around so yeah. i'm hoping there's some really useful further reading and other things for those that are interested in in that mm. yeah so who is it aimed at it's aimed at 
probably three groups of people really uh people who are directors trustees board members um people who are aspiring uh board members because i think that there isn't a lot for the aspiring group uh, uh about um and people who work with boards so you know a lot of people work with boards but aren't on a board or you know that's not the direction they're going to go but actually having a really good insight on you know how boards work um and why they work that way and, and and all the rest of it is probably very helpful if you're just working with a board so you may be a consultant you may be um uh something like that and of course uh, as you'll see in the book i i think the role of the cfo is really critical in making a board work you know yeah. it's a key figure in that venn diagram intersection between the board and the management and so um it's also aimed at cfos um, brilliant brilliant sounds as though i should actually be getting on and reading a copy it's been on my reading list for a while patrick but somehow the last six months seem to have been so busy i seem to have done very little reading but i'm, I'm sitting here thinking about my position and thinking well yeah that could potentially be very interesting um i am trustee of a charity it's a very small one um but i've been a governor stroke non-executive director of a, a major further education college in the northeast i uh, gave that up because of lack of time but in uh, being a management consultant for the last 25 years and being the normally the finance guy in the consulting project my client has more often than not been the finance director or cfo so mm. i can see i'm dropping into probably Nearly all three of your categories as somebody who's been on a board, somebody who works with boards. Um, I haven't really been a non-exec properly on a, mm. a on a private sector board. And I think that, that's something I'd love to explore in the future. So I can see the relevance of the book for somebody who wants to be on a board. Yeah, and it's focused on the things that people actually do. So it's not a sort of, you know, a long book about the duties and, and and responsibilities it's about the practical things that you do you know making decisions mm. uh, building a board you know what's yeah. the people all, all of those practical things resolving managing conflict um yeah. you know all, all of that stuff so patrick what makes a good board i think i mean if i go back to my little triangle which uh you know when i was looking at investments to make through i always used to think of you know is this a board that's got clarity of purpose? So has the organisation got clarity of purpose? And are they clear what their role is? Mm. Is it a board with the right people working together in the right way? And has it got the right process for that sort of organisation? So, you know, if that's a public company, that's quite a different set of processes to a small private company. If it's private equity backed, it'll have different processes again. If it's a public body, it will have other uh, uh, processes and, and and sort of context around it and quite different people so i would i would generally go back to that and i think you know if you've got that alignment behind you know um what you're trying to do you've got a really good bunch of people working together really well and you've got uh you know good underpinning process then that's basically it really yeah now, you said earlier that cfo was very important in making that board work um to what extent, though, is the, the chair important? 
The, the chair is critical. I mean, I think if, if you were saying, you know, I mean, uh, when I'm talking with um, private equity people um, and I say, you know, you've got a limited amount of time to do due diligence on a board. Uh, if you had four characters to prioritise your due diligence on, let's just say you could only prioritise on, on four, I would tend to go for the chair, the CEO, the CFO, and whoever is the most senior of the independent directors. Uh, because that's the nucleus of a really good board. I think the CFO plays that kind of fantastic interlocutor role between yeah. the executive and the board. They should be a partner and peer to the CEO rather than a servant to the CEO. Um, there's something in the book I, I've written about. It's, it's like a sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for CFOs. Um, and uh, looks at, you know, if you were recruiting a CFO as a board member, what would you look for? Uh, and, uh, and I go through that. But I think it's a very challenging role. It's partly why it's so interesting and attractive to many people. Um, and you kind of have to be independently minded. Um, you know, you have to be the one within the executive to perhaps say the things that need saying and to challenge and all the rest of it. You have to be you know, uh, a really good critical friend with the, the CEO, as well as a great support to the CEO. Um, and within the board, you know, the board absolutely is dependent. I mean, I would say uh, critical, but the chair really is, you know, really is responsible for building the board team, making sure those relationships are effectiveness, making sure that relationships with stakeholders are uh are as they should be, uh, and is the guardian ultimately of the the vision and the strategy, the culture and the values, and and, and all that goes with that. Mm, yeah, love to explore that sort of Maslow's hierarchy on hiring a CFO a little bit more with you. We we've spoken about that recruitment process for a CFO on a number of occasions it's but it's it's mostly and last week i was talking to tony talbot who's a headhunter we talked about the hidden job market i've spoken with andrew waters on this but again andrew's in the recruitment industry just seeing that from the other side of the fence and seeing it from a board member's point of view what are you looking for patrick and where do you look so the in my in my little triangle which is sort of lines across it at the base of the triangle i have integrity you've absolutely got you know as a chair or a board member to trust what the cfo is telling you absolutely in terms of current position forecast all, all the rest of it you need to have relevant and the relevant is a very key word here relevant technical competence so you know depending on the nature of the business its form of ownership and all of that you need to have a cfo that's got the relevant technical uh, technical skills. Um, you need to have uh, someone who's got really good management skills because, you know, not least to have to manage themselves, but also okay. the manage, have to manage the finance function. Um, and in order to understand and relate to the other executives in the C-suite, uh, you know, I think having that, being a good manager, leader is is kind of very helpful for that. The area where a lot of people, where I say this, people say, well, you, you know, really that, that's surprising is I, I think you also need very good sales skills yeah. uh, because a CFO um, to be successful 
you know, needs to be able to sell the idea of financial control, good budgeting, forecasting, be able to sell the organization to funders. And, and by good sales skills, I don't mean, um, you know, uh, overdoing that. A good salesperson can be trusted by the person they're selling something to. Yeah. So I think there's there's a you know this is not about smooth schmaltzy sales talk. This is about you know uh, ensuring confidence uh, mm-hmm. in, in 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 those that you deal with. Then I think they need uh, to have a good level of strategic awareness. So I'm not saying they need to be a master of strategy, but actually, if you want to be a successful peer to the CEO and be respected by the board. Your ability to escape the numbers uh, sort of um, shed uh, and actually take part fully in strategic discussions at board level and with the CEO and with the C-suite, then you need to know your way around to the basics of, of, of strategy. And then, you know, if you are on the board, um, and even if you're not, you'll be working with the board a lot. I think having good board skills, you know, knowing how to interact, when to speak, how to interject, how to have influence, um, how to turn a discussion, all of those board craft skills actually I, I think are useful. But the final thing that, that, you know, you need to know about when you're recruiting a CFO, my view is, you know, uh, have they got CEO potential and have they got CEO ambition? And, uh, you need to know that in terms of, you know, could they be a, a, uh, a contingency position? Uh, could they, you know, is that something where you've got a succession issue coming up and you could be recruiting in a candidate who could succeed into that role? Um, and actually you need to know their level of, you know, uh, what if you're going to develop, I think you take anyone into a company at a senior level, you ought to be thinking about what development you can give them to make them perform even better and add more value to your organisation. So, thinking if you think they are a potential CEO, maybe of a division or the whole thing, then, um, you know, what when you recruit them, what development do they need for that? And if you think of them in that way, I think you'll probably get the best out of your CFO. That's a, an interesting last one, Patrick, because I, I often think of the, the CFO as needing to be quite different in a way from the CEO. And I, I suppose I've got thinking about, startups a lot of the time fast growing businesses you've got the the ceo can be a very dynamic person can have fingers in lots and lots of pies be flitting all over the place and uh, i then see the cfo as kind of the the man that's one step behind him and sorting out the detail and making it work um Kind I of think, two two very diff two very senior roles, but with very different approaches. It, it depends on the size of the company as well, and I think you know if I think of um, you know really good CFOs, you know, so, so Rosie Drinkwater at University of Warwick is a fabulous CFO at Warwick, and has been highly complimentary to um, to the various vice chancellors who are affected the CEOs and. Yeah. in the university and has done quite a lot of commercial type things for the university uh, as well but I don't think you know would 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 uh, think of herself as a vice chancellor um, yeah uh, and I think that's the case you know in a lot of technical technology businesses that can be 
that can be the case. There are many CFOs who are just fantastic CFOs, have no ambition to be CEO and have all the hassle from their point of view that goes with that. Uh, and there are others who, who do. What I'm saying is I think actually know what you're getting yes. um, and understand what, what people's potential capabilities are as well as what they want to do. Because, you know, we don't always want to do what we're good at, do we? I mean, mm. uh, you have a happy life if what you're good at and what you want to do is available to you and you have a bit of misery if what you're good at you don't want to do or or it isn't yeah. available. And, and I, I'm a great advocate from that point of view of uh, you've got to take control and manage your own career and push yourself into the places where you can do what you're best at, use your skills in the best way and, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, but that, that, that sales point was an interesting one. The CFO as a salesman, um, that that echoes with with a conversation I had a few weeks ago with a. Um, it's actually talking. I think it was on my other podcast, the next hundred days, and talking to a sales trainer, Nick Bramley, and we were talking in that one about how the, the CFO could quite often be a deal closer. Yeah? Oh, very often. Salesmen have been doing the stuff, have been doing the, the real sell, but actually you put the CFO in the room sometimes and it's the, the client talking to the CFO um, that seals the deal. Or he was even echoing the idea of that sometimes it's the, the CFO of your organisation talking to the CFO of the other organisation and leaving the sales team out of it completely that finishes the deal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a sort of um, horses for courses type of thing, and it depends on the nature of the business. But if you're doing, you know, uh, if th the nature of your sales is very large contracts, then, you know, CFOs tend to have a more prominent role. If the nature of your business is very high volume service or uh, consumer goods, then that's less, uh, less the case. Um, I think, I mean, it's a very demanding role the the CFO on, but I think if you're, um, I mean, my favourite question when I'm interviewing potential CFOs is, uh, it's just a very simple question. To, I'm sure many of the people listening to this would think it's too trivial to, to be taken seriously, but I, I just sit down and say, you know, could you just run me through the financial dynamics of the business, please? Simple question. But the, but the quality of response to that varies enormously. Yes. You know, you've got some people who can't seem to do that without the aid of a computer. Uh, other people who can just write in front of you or talk in front of you say, well, you know, let me just take you through the key elements of our income statement, our cash flow and our balance sheet. And they just know it. Yep. Um, and let me tell you how that's changing as a result of the pandemic or, you know, whatever the, 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 the circumstance of the time might be. Um, and I, I love that when they yeah. when they do that um and I, I, I like going a stage further than that patrick is not necessarily talking about the p l and the balance sheet because i don't think they're always the things that tell you about the finances of the company now from a from a technical point of view i'm a huge fan of activity-based costing and activity-based management and it's all about knowing the relationship between mm. what the company does and how that drives the cost and how it drives the yeah. revenue. Um, yeah. And also what, you know, the other thing that, so that's the first question and, and, and you're spot on. I mean, the other questions I'd ask is, you know, can you just describe what the operating model is for me? And uh, can you 
you know, talk me through the strategy and where you think the soft spots are. And, and if you cover these through these very simple questions, yeah. you can you can really get a sense of, of what the person's ability to um, to have a grip on that stuff, but also how they communicate it yeah. uh, to other people. I, I think that grip on strategy is absolutely key to the CFO in terms of everything you do in finance. And one of the things that I'm a, a great fan on in, when it comes to controlling how the organization spends money is zero-based budgeting. Mm-hmm. And I always say, well, to start that, you've got to know what the strategy is, what the strategy isn't. So if somebody is arguing for a line in their budget and the, the baseline is, no, it's zero-based, you can't have it, then to justify it, the only way you can justify it is that it is essentially part of strategy. So yeah, that, that, there's that huge link between finance and strategy. And also, when you when you come to measuring all of the non-financial stuff, all of the balanced scorecard type stuff, which I really believe is the CFO's job as well, you've got to be measuring the stuff that drives the strategy. Yeah, the, K, the real KPIs. I mean, the other thing I think that's interesting at the moment is the um, what I call the move from maps to satnav uh, in terms of uh, strategy, budgeting, those, those yeah. sorts of things, and the way that we're changing the whole sort of decision framework, if, if you like. So I think, you know, we're moving away from more rigid time-based approaches mm-hmm. to ones where, you know, under these conditions, we will do this. When yes, we've achieved yes. that, we will do that. And and then and and what interplays with that really well, I think the best boards are doing is is also connecting that well to risk management. So we're you know we're thinking about risk as much as a on a just in case basis as a just in time basis, uh, and we're better understanding interdependencies. I think I think the the crisis is really. Um, accelerated that process i think and and many organizations have been you know um caught out or surprised by the levels of interdependency and and seeing the real fragility in complex supply chains or uh you know over dependence on relationships where you don't really know whether that person's going to deliver or that company's going to deliver um and uh, so i think the whole I think this linking of, you know, the annual budget's a bit like the classic map. You know, we draw it out at a particular point in time and that's the way we're going to go. We have no other information to feed feed that, whereas the, you know, sort of dynamic budgeting approaches are are more real time, but also allow the ability to plan. Yeah, my experience of budgets is that whatever you put down on a piece of paper, chances are it's wrong. Yeah, but lockstep. I mean, it's interesting having involved in a few reasonable sized startups. The the lockstep approach yeah. to spending and you know con- basically going on contingent steps. Yes. Step by step, we'll go to this rather than the you know you've got this to spend on people and people go and spend it. Yeah. Um, I think is, uh, is is interesting because you know we've all found in, in the last year the um, you know, the, the expectations have, have somewhat been been challenged and things have worked out quite yeah. differently. Yeah. And, and actually, that must be more than 15 years ago, I was part of a practice in PwC. They 
the eye analytics practice and was part of the planning and budgeting team within there. And we were advocating right back then the idea that you probably didn't have an annual budget, but you should be using rolling forecasts. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. Go and reforecast once a quarter. You're probably always forecasting 12 to 18 months out. Um, but you you reforecast each quarter, the next quarter in detail, and you stick a quarter, new quarter on the other end of your forecast to make it go the same time period. And it's you're, you're always measuring yourself against numbers that are reasonably recently put together and were put together on a sensible bit of set of assumptions that uh, resemble more closely your current circumstances. Yeah, and I think, I mean, in, in budgeting and in, in all that area, it's sort of, it's very conflict fertile, I would say. Yeah. So, you know, this this is where actually, you know, CFOs who can manage conflict effectively can mm. and have good, strong interpersonal skills can add huge amounts in that whole allocation of resources, particularly at a time where they're stretched mm. and they're finite. Uh and you you have greater uncertainty. I think the the CFO's role in in supporting the the executive team and the board in making those right judgments is really is really critical. Um, I think now, we've talked a lot about the the role of the the chair, the role of the CFO. We've talked a little bit about the CEO. What about the role of the non-executive director, Patrick? How important is the non-exec? I think really critical um, and it's getting this balance of oversight and support right that's the key to being a really good uh, non-exec. I mean they need to have, I mean I, interesting, when in, I talked about it when interviewing CFOs before, when interviewing um, non-execs I, I tend to look for three things, um, three sort of core characteristics. One is judgment, so you know, has, has this person got good judgment of people, commercial situations, you know, uh, the things that matter to to our organization um, and you can get that from their track record you can get that from the sort of things they say and you can get it from giving them a hypothetical or a real situation and saying you know what would what, how do you, you know what advice would you be giving management at this point on this and you, and you can sort of get a sense of someone's judgment i think um, then you're looking at the interpersonal skills because if you want to bring those judgments to bear then you need to have the influencing skills, you know, the conflict management skills, the sales skills, whatever it might be, to, to be able to you know, see the outcomes that you want uh, to see. And the third thing, which, which um, sometimes comes as a surprise to people, is you need really good antennae. Um, because to keep your judgments informed, I think you need to be you know, acutely aware of all those different inputs that are out there so whether they're things in board papers, whether they're things you're picking up from the team. Uh, and a part of that, I think, is being really actively open-minded. So not just being open-minded, but being actively open-minded. And, and the difference for me is, you know, an open-minded person will be prepared to change their view if someone gives them some information, which, you know, justifies that change of view. An actively open-minded person is constantly on the lookout for information to make sure their views are robust and to add to them and so on. So I think non-execs have to be sort of, there's an element of that gatherer about them in that they, you know, they read around a lot, they're looking at competitor websites, they're looking at 
um, what regulators are saying. They're looking all of, in, in the context of the organization, not just the stuff within the organization. And they have a, um, what I like to describe as a sort of cuddle and kick personality. So, you know, they get that balance of critical friend and really supportive friend, uh, right. And that's a hard thing um, to do, especially if you've been head down being a CEO or a CFO for a while. Um, you know, you kind of have to get yourself off that wheel yeah. um, and into a, into a slightly different way of, of, of thinking. When you're taking on that role, Patrick, do you, do you find it in any way frustrating? Because you're trying to be that um, critical friend and that encouraging friend, but you're not being executive at the same time. There's kind of, you know what to do, but you're not allowed to do it. Um, I think I think it's it's straightforward to resolve that. I think you could feel that. But actually, I think it's back to being clear about your purpose mm. and clear about, your uh, accountability and responsibility what's frustrating clearly is is if you feel you know something should be done differently it isn't done differently it doesn't end up in the right result you're on the board you get the blame for it <laughs> that's yeah. quite yeah you know, so I, I i know from people that's got a hard thing to uh, to live with but on the other <laughs> hand um you know if I, i've drawn a a little picture in the book which goes back to my my mathematics it's a series of venn diagrams if you could imagine you know two circles with no intersection whatsoever they're in a parallel universe yeah um, i think that's a very dysfunctional board because there isn't that connectivity between the non-execs and the and the execs if you look at the other end of the spectrum they're two massively overlapping circles and they're trying to do each other's job and I think you make a great mistake if you're a non-exec if you're trying to do the executive's job for them yeah. uh, that is not the role that, that's interesting uh, Christmas in the gross situ CFO situation room we had a conversation about pretty much exactly that yeah we're, we're one of our lady members who's on a board was having the problem mm -hmm. that her chair was trying to do the job of her CEO. Yeah, not a good, not a good thing. Whereas where you want to be is in the, you know, the beautifully drawn perfect Venn diagram that John Venn drew all those years ago, where there is clear space for the board and the exec in their roles, but a very nice level of intersection between. And those are things around, you know, coming together to really get the strategy right. How do we deal with a pandemic? You know, the big things. Yeah. That's where they spend their time on. Now, of course, in the pandemic, I think that level, that sort of intersection has widened out a bit. Mm. And it'll be very interesting because management needed a lot more support and so on. Um, but it'd be very interesting to see how that comes back um, as, as things, you know, d develop in the, in, the next, uh, yeah. in the next phase. And I must admit that I've been on a board where that Venn diagram that didn't overlap Took, took place and and actually left the board out of out of frustration because it was a feeling well all you're there for is to rubber stamp and approve uh, board reports and government yeah. documents that are coming to you you weren't actually there to ad properly advise or make use of the skills you joined the board to share with them yeah and i think it it's um it's one of those things where i think you know as a as a chair now for quite a while it's something I think about all the time and it's something I never think we've got quite right. Mm, uh, yeah. I always think actually, you know, we're in the central zone 
Um, but we're not quite there this 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 period, you know, we a bit more. And, and it's getting that balance of effectiveness and pressure right goes yeah. with this, where, you know, I think if, um, if you think of a normal distribution, a bell curve with effectiveness on the vertical axis and effectiveness on the horizontal, you know, you're asleep on the left, no, no pressure, no output. You're a headless chicken on the right. And, you know, where you want to be is in the middle where, you know, you're pacey but reflective and dynamic but well controlled. And um, you all need to help each other with, uh, with that. And the natural tendency for CEOs and CFOs, you know, even the very best, is to be a bit on the right-hand side of that curve. Mm. Um, you know, always trying to do a bit more than, um, than, than is really possible. And the natural place where the chair and the, the non-exec should be is a bit to the right, always got a bit of space in the tank to take an extra meeting, have another call, go and have a look at something, you know, all of that sort of thing. And, and I think if you've got that diet, that balance, um, you know, that helps hugely in getting that, that the right to be the right place in the, in the, in the Venn diagram as well. So Patrick, that has been absolutely fascinating. I know we could we could go on and we could probably talk here for another hour, but I'm conscious that we, we've already been going probably long enough for the average listener. Um, I would say that it sounds, sounds like your book and possibly your previous ones are absolute great reading for the future and the existing CFO. So I'll look, drop a link to Patrick's book in the show note. It's Boards. By Patrick Dunn. It's available from Amazon and all other good booksellers. Um, Patrick, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you.